0: Over the Thanksgiving break, we were traveling um, between our house in Franklin and Atlanta. Jody's, my wife Jody's parents live in Atlanta, and we make that trip quite a few times, and there's always this one stretch when you're on I-24, once you've gotten past Murfreesboro and you're headed down toward Chattanooga, that there's just, there's nothing there. And inevitably, one of our three girls always has to go to the bathroom during that particular stretch. And so uh, this last time they asked, and... uh, I said, Why didn't you go to the bathroom before we left? You know, that's my first reaction. I said, I forgot. You know, and then I kind of stifle my anger a little bit. And then I say, Well, I can't stop right now. Why not? Because we're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and she said, What's the middle of nowhere? Like she's looking out the windows, like looking for a sign that says middle of nowhere. I said, The middle of nowhere is any place on this highway where there's no Chick-fil-A. <laughs> <laughs> she said, Oh. And so we found a truck stop to stop. And, and so we had this conversation in the car and the rest of the trip. And what is the middle of nowhere? And, and it, it's interesting how we all, I mean, I guess that's a first world problem, right? But it's interesting how we all tend to think about these nowhere places of the in-between. And from my perspective, nowhere is where I don't wanna be. Nowhere is where I can't find a place to stop. I can't find a place to rest. We, we're in this series an Advent. We've titled it Nowhere. Both because that's the theme of the concert last night, tonight, Nowhere Town. He's talking about Bethlehem. It's the middle of a nowhere place, honestly, that Jesus was born. But even in a broader context, we're talking about the nowhere places in our lives and the nowhere people that we are, honestly, and how God chooses to show up in spite of the nowhere places we find ourselves in and the nowhere people that we find ourselves to be. Our series called Nowhere is stories of God showing up in unexpected places in the middle of nowhere throughout the Bible. And what we found is that tends to be his pattern. That tends to be the way he works. Christmas, think about it this way, was the ultimate nowhere moment. He wasn't expected to come in the way that he did, not exactly. He wasn't expected to come in the place that he did. Well, you say, well, wasn't it prophesied he was to be in Bethlehem? Yes, but, but not in the sense. I mean, it was, it was a surprise. It was a shock even to his own parents the way it all came about. Bethlehem wasn't some big deal. Bethlehem wasn't Athens or Rome. It was a oh, little town of Bethlehem. What I love about this series that we're in is we have the opportunity to explore not just the Christmas story, but other stories of nowhere all throughout, for example, the Old Testament. We're going to be in the Old Testament today in our text, and and Lloyd, who started this series off a couple of weeks ago, was also in an Old Testament text, and we're taking these stories of God showing up in the middle of nowhere and connecting them to the Christmas event because our expectation for this series is that the Spirit will use these narratives, these biblical true stories in our lives to help us see how God is showing up in our nowhere places, and our nowhere seasons, and our moments of pause and sometimes even lost hope and desperation in our own journeys. These are the exact moments that God chooses to show up. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. We're gonna continue this journey. Lloyd started us there two weeks ago. Let me give you some context for our passage today. Lloyd, two weeks ago, talked about Hagar. If you remember, Abraham and Sarah were barren. So they schemed around God's plan and Sarah gave her maid servant to Abraham as a second wife and Hagar conceived, but of course the problem was Hagar and Sarah had some issues. So Sarah sent Hagar out. She's in the middle of the wilderness and God shows up to her in her nowhere place. And he gives her a great promise for her and her son who is not yet born, uh, Ishmael. Now, what's interesting about that story is if you fast forward a couple of generations, you get to Jacob. Now, let me connect the dots for you. Abraham and Sarah end up conceiving a child on their own, a miracle child. They name him Isaac. Isaac has two sons. Isaac has Esau and Jacob. And today we're going to look at his younger son, Jacob. The younger brother tricked the older brother Esau out of the birthright, out of the inheritance, which should have been Esau's. Isn't it interesting, as Lloyd talked about two weeks ago, how Abraham and Sarah were schemers, you know, kind of scheming around God's plan because of really their lack of faith. And here their grandson Jacob is doing the exact same thing. He tricks his brother out of his birthright on one occasion. He tricks his brother out of the blessing of the father Isaac, which had great significance, both spiritually and materially. And as Lloyd said two weeks ago, the opposite of faith is not unbelief. The opposite of faith is control. And so here you have Jacob trying to take control, egged on by his mother, Rebecca, by the way. Abraham and Sarah had schemed outside of God's provision. Now their grandson was doing the same thing. So Esau decides to kill Jacob. He's very angry, obviously. And Jacob, through the encouragement of his mother, Rebekah, flees from their home. And she tells him, Go over to where my homeland is, Haran, and there you'll find my brother Laban. And he'll keep you safe until the anger of your brother, Esau, cools down. I have a map to kind of show you the journey that Jacob was going to go on. It was a very, very long journey. Let me go ahead and put that map on the screen if we have it. What what you'll see uh, when we get this up, and if, there it is. You see a red line. I know you can't see all the the small words, and that's fine, but if you see the red line that goes kind of north-south, if you look to the south, the very bottom of that red line, you're going to see it. There's a town called Beersheba. That's where the red line ends, right there at the bottom. It's kind of over there by the Dead Sea, the the body of water. Uh, Not not the huge body of water to the west, but the the other body of water to the east is the Dead Sea. Jacob is going to start there and go all the way up to Haran, which is at the very top right-hand corner of that map. That is a long, long journey, and he's going to go way outside the Promised Land. He's going to be in Haran for 20 years with Jacob where there's a lot more scheming going on on both sides. It's a very interesting story. 20 years later, he will finally make his way back down to the Promised Land. That gives you a visual context of this long journey of Jacob. Before he gets very far, however, he's going to encounter God. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. And let's see what happens to Jacob when he's on the run. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. A good Bible study tip is to look for words or phrases that get repeated because there's Typically, a reason why. There's something the author is doing to emphasize the word or phrase. There's a word that gets repeated three times in these first two verses. Did anybody catch that? Shout it out if you know what the word is that's repeated. Place. The word place is repeated three times. Now, that's interesting because it's a nowhere place. In fact, the way it's described, the author just says he came to a certain place. It's kind of a nondescript. And by the way, we know he's kind of out in the middle of nowhere because. He lays his head on a stone. He's out under the stars. He's just sleeping out. So here's what would have happened. You can't travel at night in this time. There's no lights. It's very unsafe. You know, there's all stories throughout the Bible of people getting attacked on, on roads. And so here Jacob is. He's walking along a road. The only, place he, the only reason he stops in this place is because the sun had set, right there, verse 10, or verse 11, rather. And so he goes over to the side of the road, probably far enough off the, the main path that he couldn't be seen for the sake of his own safety, and he just lays his head on a a rock, just kind of this, this random stone, and he's under the stars in the middle of nowhere, but the author is pulling our attention to the idea that there's something about the place. Let's continue the story in verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It'd be hard to overestimate the significance of this moment both in Jacob's life and in the life of the nation that's being formed because here's what's happening. The, the words of this promise of God to Jacob are almost exactly like the words of God's promise to his grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12. So the promise God gave Abraham is now being re-articulated and given to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, which, by the way, is a sheer act of grace because this guy's a schemer. This is the younger son. He was not deserving of, 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 for the, the inheritance of the nation and the birth of the nation to flow through him by all rights that should have been his older brother's. Yet even though he had sinfully schemed, God shows up in an act of grace and according to his promise to Abraham, according to the blessing that Isaac had given to Jacob, God shows up as an act of grace and says, I will be with you and I will fulfill my promise, not because of anything you did, Jacob, but because I am a promise keeper and I made this promise and I intend to keep it. Let's speak briefly about the latter It's a very interesting and unique Hebrew word. It only shows up one time in the whole uh, Hebrew Bible, and it's right here in this verse. Um, We're not sure it was a ladder, like you and I think of a ladder with rungs. The Hebrew word is is ambiguous. It's it's just something that would connect one space to a higher elevation. So it could have been a ladder, but it could have been a stairway. Ever heard that song, Stairway to Heaven? I can't play it, otherwise I'd love to. Uh, It could have been a ramp. I have an opinion on what I think he he saw and what it was. I'm going to save that for a minute. But it's translated in ESV and some other translations, ladder. In other places, it's translated stairway. Sometimes it's translated ramp. It's really not that important what it looked like. What is more important is what it meant. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what I first want to show you is, I want to show you some artistic renditions of this because this, is, this image has stirred artists' imaginations for years, and through centuries of church history, you kind of see this represented. So go ahead and put on uh, these images. We'll start with the first one here. and kind of just take a look. And the whole reason I'm showing you this is help you connect with the story a little bit and stir your own imagination. Now, this art may or may not be your cup of tea, uh, it's not necessarily historically accurate. Can I just say that? You know, we'll start with the, the color of Jacob's skin. He's a pretty, pretty white dude there. Um, <laughs> we could talk about the angels, how those are not biblically accurate representation of angels. I'll save that for another sermon. But you get the idea that in this artist's imagination anyway, there's a literal ladder and it's going up like 800 feet, you know, right into the sky. Interesting image, an interesting way he chose to, to, to orient this whole, um, this piece of art. And it's really a beautiful piece of art, not not really historically accurate, but, but nice. Let's go to the next one. This next one you'll see represented not the ladder, but the stairway. So there's the stairway to heaven. Again, Jacob's kind of dozing. He's, he's dreaming there and he's seeing angels kind of ascending, descending. Uh, I don't know if those are bushes or clouds, dark clouds are surrounding it, but you kind of get this idea of, okay, there's, that's another take on it. You got some stairs going up and down rather than a ladder. All right, let me show you another representation of this. There's Jacob sleeping. And, you know, this one is just meant to be a little, little less realistic, perhaps, in terms of what he may have seen. You just kind of these bright lights. You get this idea of figures kind of coming up and down and in this, this stairway in the middle. I, I, I like this one. Maybe not as, as high art, but it kind of just sort of gives me this idea of this, this vision of, of heaven and earth being opened up and connected together. Go ahead and go to the next one as well. I really like this one. And uh, obviously not necessarily realistic, but here you have just some, something emotionally that I'm, I'm drawn to as I look at this just gorgeous spiral staircase that goes up. And then take a look at those angelic figures. You've got parents and children kind of coming up and down. It really, it, it's a whole different take on, uh, on this idea. And the bright sun at the top kind of representing the glory of God. I think we've got another one or two to show you. Go ahead and go to the next one. All right. Very surreal. Uh, I, I'm, I'm drawn to this idea because, again, the, the angels, they're usually represented as just this bright. They're these bright beings. So this artist literally just said, I'm just going to draw some bright orbs of light. You know, I guess that's what he's going for there. It's an interesting one. Not my favorite, but it's a different take on it. And then one more that I want to show you This is not a painting, this is a photograph. Um, Three years ago, 2016, in uh, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, they commissioned an artist to build a ladder uh, up into the, the ceiling of their cathedral. And the artist used LED lights, on that ladder so that he could project images of figures walking up and down. So you can imagine coming into this cathedral and encountering that massive ladder and that image. It's pretty awe-inspiring, isn't it? your gaze is just kind of drawn upward into the uh, upper recesses of that cathedral. Pretty cool work of art. Now, go ahead and take that off the screen. I wanted that to stir your imagination a little bit because this was a very significant moment Uh, This changed the game in some incredible ways that I want to explain to you. And I mentioned it is less important what it looked like, more important what it meant. So let's talk about what it meant. I never understood the meaning of this text until these last few weeks when I paid closer attention to the next two verses. Verses 16 and 17 talk about what Jacob says when he wakes up. And this is where I think the meaning will begin to be unlocked. Let's take a look at verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Verse 17. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Did you notice what word gets repeated again? Place. The key to understanding this whole story is to focus on the word place. Isn't it interesting that Jacob connects the dream to the place? That's not where my mind would have gone. If I was traveling and you know, I guess maybe the, uh, the, the equivalent of the, the, the side of the road, on, head on a rock would be a Motel 6 today. If I'm, if I'm standing at a Motel 6 and I have a weird dream, I'm not gonna wake up and say, yeah, there's something about this six, this Motel 6. There's something about this place. That's not where my brain's gonna go, but it's where Jacob's mind went. He wakes up. He says, this Lord is in this place. I didn't know it. How awesome. Now that word is connected to awe and fear even. It's not cool. It's like, oh my goodness, this is overwhelming. This place is. Here's the key. You have to understand how ancient people thought about places, particularly holy places. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's start here. In the poetry of the Old Testament, and so in in the, the imaginative mind of the Hebrew people, where does God dwell? Well, you say he dwells in heaven. Yes, but did you know that the word for heaven is the same word for heavens, skies, plural? It's always plural in Old Testament Hebrew. So it's not heaven, it's actually heavens. And so when you think about the stars, the moon, the sky, those are the heavens. So God, according to the the Hebrew poetry and the Psalms and other places, God's home, God's dwelling place is in the heavens, plural. Man's dwelling place is on the earth. So you have this idea in the ancient mind, in the Hebrew mind, and and this was God's revelation to them at this point in the story. Okay, remember the concept of progressive revelation. God doesn't tell everything all at once. We're in Genesis now, remember this. They have this idea that God's home is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. So man's dwelling is earth, God's dwelling is the heaven, God's space is the heaven, man's space is the earth. Theologically now, the Hebrews had learned, at least by the time of the psalmist, which of course is after uh, Jacob, but they learned that God's also everywhere. There's a sense that he's omnipresent, but, but particularly, his home is the heavens, our home is the earth. This is what made the Garden of Eden so remarkable because they could look backward and say, hey, there was a time when God and man dwelled together. That's been lost. Now, as God revealed himself to the Hebrew people throughout their story, throughout their journey, they came to understand that there were some other places that seemed to be holy, that seemed to be a place where human space and God space overlap in a unique way. Those became holy places. And by the way, this is not only how the Hebrews thought, this is how the broader uh, context, cultural context around them, ancient people in the Near East, they, this is how they conceived. So the, the, they, they conceived of God's space and human space, and they conceived of holy places or temples as the intersection of the two. So when you walk in a temple, it's special, it's meaningful, because it's the intersection of heaven and earth. I uh, heard a helpful analogy by Tim Mackey, who's uh, one of the guys at the Bible Project, which is a great resource, great website. They make uh, videos, and they do have a great podcast as well. And he used this analogy. He said, you know how on our devices, unless you have um, a data plan, you can't get connected to the internet unless you're in a Wi-Fi hotspot that's what it's like from an ancient person's perspective when they go into a holy place or a temple it's like they're in a hot spot they can they're, they're they're now connected because they're in the space you see they're in the place where there's a hot spot it's a really helpful way to consider how ancient people thought about holy places and temples so Jacob this is where I want to connect the story Jacob falls asleep and to his mind a, re- a seemingly random place it's just a certain place middle of nowhere he has this remarkable dream he sees this ladder or stairway or whatever it was connecting heaven and earth and from his perspective he says I've stumbled on a hot spot I've stumbled into a holy place. Guys, I'm not making this up. Look what he says. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. By the way, this is why I think it was not a ladder but a stairway or a ramp because you don't get to a temple. You don't climb up to a temple on a ladder. You climb up to a temple on the stairs or or possibly a ramp. Now, Let's keep going here. And some of you may be like feeling attention. It's like, well, was he right? You know, was was it really the gateway of heaven? We're going to get there. Let's continue our story. Look at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Pause right there in the middle of this verse. Let's talk about what Bethel means. It's a compound word. Beth, or better pronounced bait, means House, L means God. So this is house of God. He calls the place house of God. It makes a lot of sense for what he understands that he has just been revealed to him. Do you see what he's doing, by the way? He's making this spot a holy place. He's consecrating it. He's marking it as an intersection between heaven and earth, a, a temple of sorts, a sacred space, a holy place. Let's keep going and finish that verse. But the name of the city was Luz, At the first, Luz is a Canaanite city. Now it would have been nearby, not right where he was. So the author's just naming, yeah, Bethel's there now, but it used to be Luz. The closest city was this Canaanite city called Luz. Let's go on to verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and I will give bread uh, and, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, Then the Lord shall be my God, and the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Isn't that interesting? And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Boy, this is significant. You know, I, I believe this is the first time that Jacob makes a commitment to follow Yahweh, the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. And this is the moment when God revealed himself to Jacob, and Jacob says, okay, God, if, if you're going to promise me that, you're going to be with me, and you're going to take care of me, and you're going to bring me back to this place in peace. Remember, he's running away from his brother who wants to kill him. Then, then I'm going to worship you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you a tenth of all that I have. Do you see what he's doing? He's already worshiping in the place that he has established as a place of worship. By the way, on his way back home 20 years later, he's going to stop at that same place and worship again. Holy place, sacred place. Bethel ends up becoming the most important place of worship until after the exodus from Egypt. And of course, at that time during the exodus, the Hebrews set up the tabernacle, which is a tent, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tent. And the tabernacle would travel around with them and that became their holy place. It went with them. God's, because it's signifying God's presence, traveling with them wherever they go. But prior to the tabernacle, the most sacred space in the promised land was Bethel because of what God revealed to Jacob in this story right here, Bethel, house of God. So I want to make the argument, there's a theological line you can connect from Bethel to the tabernacle, ultimately to the temple in Jerusalem, which replaced the tabernacle and becomes a permanent spot where the Hebrews understood, yeah, the presence of God is in that holy of holies. So what's the big idea of this story? Well, here it is. The presence of God transforms a nowhere place into a holy place. Jacob went to sleep in the middle of nowhere. He put his head on a a common dirty rock. That rock ends up sitting at the top of a pillar that marks the most important place of worship in the patriarchal period. What a transformation. And what was the key to the transformation? God revealed himself as present. Where God is, is not a nowhere place. Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar um, whom I really appreciate. And he wrote this about this story. Until God reveals his presence at Bethel, Jacob's place appears dark, stony, and hard. However... When his eyes are opened to see beyond his physical surroundings to the metaphysical, his hard place is transformed into an awe-inspiring sanctuary, the axis between heaven and earth. I'm going to read you another quote, this time from Walter Brueggemann, who, another really helpful scholar. He, he says it this way. He's talking about the meaning of the, the ladder, the stairway, and particularly the fact that the angels... What, what's the meaning of the angels kind of walking up and down? It, it, it kind of creates this idea of, of, of commerce, in a way, of, of communication and comings and goings between heaven and earth. Here's what he writes about that. It means that earth is a place of possibility, because it has not been and will not be cut off from the sustaining role of God. Guys, think about that theologically in light of what happened at the Garden of Eden. Heaven and earth together overlapping in the garden, separated through man's sin. Fast forward, God gives Jacob this dream, this vision, and the meaning of it is earth is a place of possibility still because it has not been cut off from the sustaining role of God. Even more importantly, this dream has significant meaning for Jacob. To paraphrase Brueggemann's quote, here's what the dream means for Jacob. It means that now Jacob's life is a life of possibility because it has not been and will not be cut off from the sustaining role of God. The schemer the trickster, the conniver, the, 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 the man who was not following Yahweh. This means that he's not been cut off. This means that God's gonna be with him. This means that his life is now a life of possibility. So not only is the place transformed from a nowhere place to a somewhere place, Jacob is transformed from a nobody to a somebody. Bruce Waltke, one more time. In sum, the story is filled with transformations due to God's presence. A man running away from home runs into God. A man afraid of his brother comes to fear God. A certain place becomes nothing less than God's place. A rock becomes a temple. Night turns into morning. Canaanite lose becomes Hebrew Bethel, the house of God. And what causes all that transformation? The presence of God. Wherever God is, is not a nowhere place. Now, how does all this connect to Christmas? I thought you'd never ask. Turn to John chapter one. I want to show you something. Now, as you know, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The the Christmas story is only really told in two of them, Matthew and Luke. However, all four talk about the coming of Jesus. All four talk about the arrival of Jesus. I want to make a case that John talks about the birth as well. John talks about Christmas, but it's just in one verse. But let me show you something the way John talks about the arrival of Jesus. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1. And what John is doing here is he's beautifully retelling the creation story. Like back in Genesis one, he begins with the retelling of Genesis one in a remarkable manner. Listen to this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life that was the light of men pause there for a minute and skip down to verse 14. John's going to fast forward from the creation account to the Christmas account. Verse 14 and the word became flesh. Okay, There's the birth. There's advent and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Importantly Dwelt among us translates a Greek word that means tabernacled. It, it's the exact same word, you know, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, this is the word they use for tabernacle. It, it means that God set up a dwelling with us, that God set up a tent to dwell with mankind. It's an allusion to the presence of God in the tabernacle in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Jesus. What John is saying is that Jesus is the ultimate overlap between heaven and earth. Jesus is the ultimate hotspot. He's the intersection between God's space and human space. Fully God, fully man. Have you ever thought about Jesus that way? This is what John is saying. It gets even better. I want you to look at the end of chapter one and, and don't miss that this is still right in the same chapter. It's you know, just 20, 30 verses later. I wanna pick up the story in verse 47. Jesus is now grown up and he's beginning to call his disciples and he has an encounter with this man named Nathanael that's remarkable in light of the story that we've talked about earlier. Let me pick it up in verse 47, John chapter one. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Here's the key, verse 51. And he said to him, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man." The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. If you've never understood what Jesus meant by that, that interaction with Nathaniel, you're about to this morning. He's talking about Jacob's dream. There's no question that that's what he's referencing. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying, I am the ladder. I'm the stairway. I'm I'm the connectivity between heaven and earth. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on me, Jesus is saying. I am the place where heaven and earth intersect. I am the gateway to heaven. So think about this, guys. Bethel, house of God, then later on the tabernacle, then later on the temple, they all pointed to Jesus. Jesus. They were Old Testament prototypes that found their fulfillment in Christ. So in the glory of God's progressive revelation, do you see what all the ultimate meaning of all of this is? The intersection between God's space and man's space is not a place. It's a person. It's a person. This explains why Jesus referred to himself as the temple. And by the way, that comes from John 2, 19. It's like 19 verses after, after we, we just, what we just read. Jesus says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will ri- raise it again. And they're like, what is he talking about? You know, it took our forefathers all these hundreds of years to build this temple and you're gonna rebuild it in three days? What are you talking about? Jesus wasn't talking about a physical space. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his body. Do you see this? Now, John was a brilliant writer, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is brilliant. But you see what John has done in the space of just barely one chapter, one chapter and a few extra verses, John has said, Jesus is the tabernacle, Jesus is Bethel, and Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the intersection of heaven and earth. What does this all mean for us? Let me give you a few thoughts of application. Uh, To summarize where we've been, the presence of God at Beth El transformed a nowhere place into the house of God. Fast forward about 2,000 years or so and another nowhere place. This time, the little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, means house of bread, bait, house, lechem, bread, house of bread. In the nowhere town of Bethlehem, the nowhere place of Bethlehem, the presence of God transforms that place into the ultimate house of God, the birthplace of God himself. And through Christ, as he grows up and starts proclaiming his message, we learn that the intersection of heaven and earth is ultimately not a place, but a person. Isn't it interesting that it was a baby? From the eyes, the world's perspective, a nobody. A baby in a stall in a nowhere town. Do you see the pattern? The presence of God transforms the small, the insignificant, the overlooked, the barely worth mentioning into something remarkable. God takes delight doing that. Here's our reason for hope. Here's our reason for joy, which is our our word of the day from our Advent wreath. A, A reason that we can have joy is that the presence of God in us through Christ gives our lives eternal value, gives our lives significance. So listen, here's where some of you are right now. and In many ways, we can all identify with this, but some of you in the room are gonna acutely identify with this season. For some of you, your life's journey feels like you're in the middle of nowhere right now. You're in a wilderness season. You're experiencing a, a season of loss. Maybe you just feel a little bit lost to yourself. Maybe it feels like every night you're laying your head on a rock, For you, that rock might be anxiety or fear. Maybe it's doubt, depression, physical struggle, relational struggle. There's a sense that every night you say, if I could just have some rest, and either literally or figuratively, you're not resting. This Advent season is an opportunity for God to open up our eyes to see beyond our circumstances beyond the physical, you know, beyond what's right before us, beyond beyond the stone, beyond the wilderness, beyond the nothingness that's there, the buriedness that's there, and see the intersection of heaven and earth in the person of Jesus. For anyone who's put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know what that means? The spirit of Jesus indwells you. God is with you. What's the significance of Christmas? It's, it's in the name that was promised to the child, Emmanuel, God with us. So here's what this means. For all who've put our faith in Christ, there are no more nowhere places when God is with you. There are no more throwaway seasons or meaningless moments or insignificant lives when you're filled with the spirit of Christ. It means, if I could grab back onto that Brueggemann quote one more time, it means that now your life is a life of possibility. Because it has not been and will not be cut off from the sustaining role of God. That's the significance of a nowhere place called Bethel. It was a nowhere place that became a holy place, so that nobody, people like you and me, could know that God is with us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, you're good to give us your word. I think about this moment in time that, that, that could have been lost to us because it was so long ago. And, you chose for us to have it. I thank you for revealing yourself to Jacob in a way that was remarkable. And I thank you for the way the whole scripture ties together. And I thank you for, for Jesus and, and the moment that he greeted Nathaniel and he makes this profound statement that he's the place. It's in him. Uh, God, I know there's there, there are men and women in the room. There's there some that they've never, they've never found a place of rest ever, they they haven't found the intersection of their lives with your life God, I pray you'd give them faith to believe, even right now as I'm speaking these words um, that you would infuse in them by their spirit belief faith I pray that they would see Jesus as the ladder as the gateway, as the stairway that they would understand that he is the way to you that he is what gives their life ultimate significance and meaning, that that he is the reason that they can know their life is a life of possibility. And and Father, I wanna pray for all of us who believe and just find ourselves in some nowhere places in our lives. Father, I pray for deep comfort and rest, even joy in the middle of nowhere because you're with us. I pray for these things and I thank you for the work that you're doing in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Let's stand together and worship our Savior.